What is a pressure sore? Um, a decubitus ulcer is more of the old-fashioned name for it. It is something that can happen anywhere. It can be on the sacrum, the ischium, the trochanter, the heel, the occiput, any basically point in your body that is not well padded, that's usually skin and soft tissue that's right next to bone. So who gets pressure ulcers? Um, certainly can be seen in an acute care setting, um, definitely seen in long-term care facilities, and the highest incidence would be in elderly patients who have um, femoral neck fractures or in quadriplegics or paraplegics or, you know, anybody who is debilitated, anybody who has poor nutrition, anybody who um, does not have normal sensation. So those are some of the, the most important key factors that we're thinking about. Interestingly, though, and we get this consult a lot, you know, worried that the pressure sore is a source of infection, it often is not the thing that is contributing to the patient's mortality. It's often not the thing that's making a patient sick. They're being made sick by their overwhelming disease burden. You know, this isn't something that, you know, you have somebody who's healthy 35-year-old who comes in off the street with a pressure ulcer. Um, these are patients, as we we're talking about, malnutrition, immobility, and ultimately decreased pressure, tissue perfusion. So why do you get it? Why do, why do some patients get it and some patients not get it? Well, certainly there are a couple different extrinsic factors. So one is pressure, which is perpendicular load on an area. Another is shearing, and I know that this is being emphasized a lot more in the hospitals um, where I work particularly with nursing and transferring the patient, that if you pull a sheet or pull um, cloth across a patient, that that shear effect can actually really contribute to uh, the breakdown of an area. And friction, which is a similar idea. So what are some intrinsic factors, so things that are part of the patient? Well, local ischemia or poor blood flow, because a lot of this goes back to blood flow. Um, infection, certainly, a patient has underlying osteo, and often these are things that are contributing. So someone has an ischial pressure ulcer, um, it doesn't heal, the underlying bone gets infected, and it, it just continues on in a, unfortunately, very predictable, protracted course. Immobility, as we talked about, so even patients who aren't um, paraplegic, who do have normal sensation, but especially if a patient is elderly, if they have dementia, if they're not able to speak up and say what's going on. Um, and of course, this goes in with incontinence, which is a very difficult problem to treat. Certainly, we have patients who have C. diff, other issues um, with continence. It is a big challenge. It's a big challenge for nursing care, and, and they try very hard to fight it, but it's a lot. Um, hypoproteinemia. So one of the things that I always check, and we'll talk about more about this later on my patients when they have um, pressure ulcers, is what's their prealbumin level? What's their albumin? How's their nutrition doing? If they aren't getting enough protein and they aren't getting um, a really a healthy diet and are able to heal that, um, they're not going to ever be able to heal the pressure ulcer, and they're just going to be increased risk of getting different ones. Sensory loss and diminished autonomic control as well. So pathophysiology, very simply, is pressure and time. So I know we're under pressure here because we have to finish on time, but all these patients, it's pressure and too long time. So that's the, the thing that I try to explain to patients as simply as possible. Because um, something that I also try to do with these patients is really, you know, these often are patients who have a profound sense of loss of control. It doesn't work as well um, with patients who are demented or can't participate in their care for whatever reason, but I find when you try to make it 
proactive, try to make it about patient caring for themselves. You know, telling them, you know, this is the body that you're going to have for the rest of your life. You know, how can we be proactive about you understanding what the causes of pressure sores are so we can prevent these in the future? So if you pressure in one area leads to hyperemia. So that's that first stage. In two to six hours is ischemia, which is not enough blood supply. By six hours, you get necrosis. And in two weeks of that area later, you get ulceration or a hole. So staging of pressure ulcers is something probably a lot of you are familiar with. Number one, non-blanchable erythema of the skin. So this can be very hard to see on patients who um, are African-American or who have darker skin tone. Um, but certainly, if you see a red patch, that can be concerning. And something to say, listen, this patient's going to need to be turned more often. We really have to make sure that they're not um, putting too much pressure in one area. Stage two, full thickness dermis to junction of sub-Q fat. Stage three, extension two, but not through underlying fascia. And stage four, damage to muscle bone or supporting structures. Okay, so how do we prevent pressure ulcers, right? So one is good uh, bowel and bladder hygiene, keeping everything clean and dry. Um, certainly control of spasticity is very important. Antispasmodic medications, chordotomy, rhizotomy um, in selected patients. Pressure dispersion. Um, so I'm sure you guys are familiar with the low air loss mattresses and the air fluidized beds. Um, wheelchair cushions. I can't tell you how many patients I see um, who come in who say, I have this because my wheelchair cushion was broken and I couldn't get a new one. And then they develop this ulcer which leads them down a whole path. So it is a really common problem and that's another thing that I try to talk to patients about being proactive to try to get their whole support system in place at home um, to make sure that they understand that they have to um, advocate for themselves. Medical management, so there are things, topical things that we can do. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with collagenase. It's a topical um, debriding agent. Um, calcium alginate is um, like a sponge that sucks in extra fluid. So if you have a wound that's really wet, that has too much fluid, that the alginate can help. Um, Silvadine can be great in certain situations, or a VAC. So let me talk a little bit more about that. VACs are great. How many people are familiar with a VAC? Everybody, basically. So I can skip over this pretty quickly. Lots of good things, lots of benefits. It gets rid of a lot of the fluid. It stimulates um, cell mitosis. Um, and it's something that we can do in very large areas. So it often is incredibly beneficial. This is a, a huge vac for somebody's belly, um, for an open abdominal wound. Um, and it, it's a great safe bridge to uh, ultimate surgical option. So you could put it on the foot. I'm sure you guys have seen this. OK, what do you need to know preoperatively, right? So you say, OK, well, we're going to do surgery. What's important? Well, probably stage three or four, right? So at least. Um, down through the fashion to the muscle. Need to optimize nutrition. So under no circumstances would I do a flap reconstruction or any kind of reconstructive surgery on a patient who isn't in tip-top shape because it's just not worth it. And the recurrence rate of these procedures is often very high. So it's very important, and I'll skip a little bit to the end, the patient has to be absolutely on board. And this is, again, patient advocacy, patient um, understanding what they're in for. But if the patient is not on board preoperatively, there's just no point in doing the surgery. You're just, you're doing it for it to fail. Um, 
They probably need an indwelling urinary catheter depending on where or and or diversion of stool with a colostomy depending on um, the site of the pressure ulcer, controlling spasticity and treating osteo. So that's another thing. So we would want um, any osteo to be completely treated before we went ahead and did a flap surgery. Okay, so we want to excise any ulcer or bursa in the surgery. We want to remove any bone that's bad. We want to fill any dead space. Dead space um, is basically any space on the body that has a, a hole. So we want to pack things in there, fill it in, put healthy vascularized muscle in, and that's what we do as plastic and reconstructive surgeons. Resurface, plan for recurrence, um, and also try to prevent. And I'll talk a little bit about prevention. But again, every incision that we do, every flap that we do, we are planning for one year, two years, 10 years down the road, when this breaks down, what's gonna be your next option, okay? Because ultimately, again, that patient only has that one body and you are gonna run out of options eventually. So overall, our reconstructive algorithm, primary repair means putting the two ends together. Skin graft is taking a graft, a shave of skin from somewhere else on the body um, and moving that to the area. And the third is flap repair. And we can talk a little bit about that. I have some images. And forewarned is forearmed. Some of these images are a little graphic, which I completely forget when I'm putting together these because this is sort of what I do every day. So, okay, so vacuum assisted closure. Here's a relatively small pressure ulcer over the lateral aspect of the leg with a vac. It healed on its own. Skin grafts. So this is someone who lost their arm. They have a large area of exposed muscle. They were vac for temporized. Here's the muscle, looks a little bit better. Skin graft. And then there's the donor site. And then it's healed. So that's a relatively simple thing, something that we can do pretty straightforward way. Fasciocutaneous fat. That's sort of a fancy way for saying a flap that's made of skin and fat that doesn't have any muscle in it. So this is a sacral pressure ulcer. Oh, the images didn't quite come through, um, but basically sliding, it's like a yin-yang, so sliding those two pieces together to cover the ulcer in the middle. This is another ulcer um, down here, and the whole um, tissue, the skin and fat from the leg, was brought up to cover that ulcer completely. So muscle flaps. So here is some exposed hardware from a pressure ulcer on the leg. Taking, um, this is a medial gastrocnemius flap, so we can either take the medial or the lateral part of these uh, flaps and flip them over. This is something that we do pretty routinely. So before and after. Um, this is a case I did recently. So this is a patient who had a terrible problem. Um, a, a paraplegic who, this is actually his femur. His femur had broken and would, had never healed. Um, he had uh, terrible osteo of his femur. I think I have an image of the bone. Um, and he needed a hip disarticulation, which is essentially taking off someone's whole leg. Um, and we had to deal with this pressure ulcer, right, which is here. You can see how deep it is. It was quite extensive. But we also had to figure out how are we going to put all the pieces together. So there's his, his damaged leg. There's the pressure ulcer. Often 
in patients who have very bad pressure ulcers that are longstanding, it ends to be like a tip of an iceberg. So you see a small skin opening, but the area of undermining underneath is quite extensive. Um, so patients may not understand the extent of the problem that they have, um, so that's important to educate them about as well. So this is, I've already amputated his um, leg through the knee. Um, and this is getting ready to do um, hip disarticulation. And this is something called a fillet of thigh flap. So literally, I took all the muscles from the front of the thigh and used them to resurface. So you're gonna see how this goes. So look how diseased that bone is, right? This is all osteo that's related to chronic untreated pressure sores. So um, it can be really a terrible disease. So um, there is the muscle, everything is prepared for the flap. And um, I rotated a piece of muscle inside to cover the hip joint after it was debrided um, because you want to, again, dead space is the enemy. We don't want to leave a space there. And then we covered everything up in here four weeks later. Okay, so prevention. So this is um, one of the new exciting things um, that we're doing. So um, total in our practice, we've done about seven patients. So this is a completely different approach to how to treat pressure ulcers. So we were talking about big surgeries, you know, you know, it's gonna come back, there's not much you can do. This is a particularly, a completely different way to think about it. So the idea is, if someone can feel where they have pressure, can they prevent the pressure ulcers themselves without someone else being have to be on a clock turning it back and forth? So we actually took an intercostal nerve, which is um, Dr. Kaufman showed you pictures of before. The intercostals are the nerves that run um, on the ribs, and used a sural bridging graft. So the sural nerve is a nerve um, that's in the leg. Taking that nerve and anastomosing it or connecting it to either the superior posterior cutaneous nerve of the thigh or the sciatic nerve. Now let me see if I can get this running. This is Mr. Cavallari's 55-year-old gentleman. 50. 50, I'm sorry, 50-year-old gentleman who uh, 50 weeks ago, just shy of a year, uh, he had a, uh, an initial pressure ulcer, uh, which we uh, did a rotation uh, flat for, and we also neurotized into his gluteal nerve uh, from his uh, intercostal. Uh, over the past uh, few months now, can you describe the sensibility that you've been getting? Yes, it's a, a, I would say, a light burning sensation in my left bottom. Which you had not had before? No. Okay. And when I touch you on your right buttock, tell me if you feel anything? Not particularly. And you had, the feeling on the left buttock was the same prior, correct? Yes. Do you have any feeling up there? Yes. <laughs> and how about right here? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I saw my 10 bucks a shot. <laughs> So as you can see, he's uh, developing some sensibility of his left buttock. So that was my senior partner, Dr. Elkwood, appearing on, on TV. Thank you very much. Really appreciate your time and attention.